0: Hello, and welcome to the Harvard Data Science Review Podcast. I'm Liberty Vittert, feature editor, and I, along with my co-host and editor-in-chief, Shaoli Meng, are diving into a highly controversial topic today, refugees and immigration. American public opinion seems very divided on these issues, but is it really Is America more or less welcoming to refugees and immigrants than other parts of the world? And how will the southern border, Ukraine, name a crisis, affect the upcoming American political elections? We bring in two experts to discuss Scott Tranter, who currently leads data science and engineering efforts at Dynata. He's also the co-founder of Optimus Analytics, which was acquired by Dynata in 2021, and is an investor in Decision Desk HQ, which provides election results data to news outlets, political campaigns, and businesses. We also have with us Professor Catherine Donato, who holds the Donald G. Herzberg Chair in International Migration at Georgetown University and is the director of the Institute for the Study of International Migration in the Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown
1: University. Catherine and thank you so much for joining us for this episode. And uh, since this is a data science uh, podcast, our uh, well, first question is about the data, which really is about what are the current reliable opinion pools available out there about the general American public sentiment towards refugees and migrants, and how do we know these opinion pools, whatever they are, themselves are reliable?
2: <laughs> well, let me break that down into two questions: is what what are good ones to do, and how do we know they're reliable? I still think Pew is probably the best resource for what i would call unbiased research on the american public opinion they do very good international public opinion as well on immigration issues and things like that one of the reasons is it's very longitudinal they have some questions on immigration going back 30 40 50 years now probably even longer than that mm-hmm. and they're very good and well funded they don't miss quarters they don't miss they don't miss reportings and so we can look back at the 90s of what people thought about cross-border immigration between US and Mexico and see how it's evolved over the over the last 20 years is debate. Mm-hmm. Now, how do we know it's reliable? Mm-hmm. Well, that's the ever-pressing question with polling is, is, is it reliable, right? And I think, right. you know, Li, you and I have talked many times, you know, it's statistics, it's, you know, we're getting close, but we're probably wrong somewhere and the key is to know where we're wrong. Mm-hmm. So that's a long way of me saying it, is, I think Pew does a good job because they're consistent. They may be wrong, But they're looking at attitudinal shifts. And so if they're off by five, they've been off by five for 30 years and they get us right directionally, which I think is the important part when people look at polls. Don't look at the numbers and and look for precision. Look at the numbers and look for trends. And I think that's that's what everyone should take away from stuff like that.
1: And this is a question to both of you. Uh, you both talk about this, you know, the importance to think about things over, over the time. As we know that the public tends to pay particular attention to issues like refugee migrants when there are some crisis, whether it's in Syria, Venezuela, now it's Ukraine. How things have changed over the time? Are these all the crises are more or less similar the way they, you know, react and maybe they faded away, or is there things like over the time, you too, as uh, experts in these areas, notice there are things are, of a significant change, one crisis is not like another crisis.
2: You know, I think when we look at some of the polling in and around some of these countries before they become in the news. You know, you mentioned Syria, you mentioned Ukraine, the Southern border while is persistent in U S politics has times of spiking and not spiking. Mm-hmm. It's largely changed. When we look at the U S based stuff, it's largely revolved around political party lines and the, and the messaging has roughly been the same over the last 10 or 15 years. It's not necessarily about the specific reason it popped up, right? So during the 2020 election, it was around some of these migrant caravans coming from South America up through Mexico across the border. It really wasn't about that specific caravan. While well, that's what the news covered. That was symbolic of the larger immigration issue as a whole. Whereas we see internationally when it's about Syria, Ukraine, it's usually not about that specific instance. It's about, okay, well, what do we think about foreign aid? All of a sudden, the public remembers that, oh, we spend billions of dollars on foreign aid. It's not hundreds of millions of dollars, things like that. That's been primarily how the public has been viewing it over the last 10 or 15 years, mostly because how they've been consuming their news and where they get their news from. I think what's interesting or what, what I've noticed has changed is there isn't a whole lot of movement. And I'd be curious to see what Catherine thinks on this is general feelings about should we support refugees overseas or by and large, should we support change to our immigration policy in the US? The opinion lines have been pretty solidified, which is interesting because we do know from public opinion research and just sociology and political science, you can change people's opinions. This happens. These things happen quite a bit. And so I think there's an opportunity here for people who want to push their side to kind of change up the message in a little bit to get what they want, because we do see that in small scale tests, whether it be message testing, ad testing or focus groups. There's quite a bit of consistency. There's not a whole lot of change over the last 10 or 12 years um, in the messaging or, or what we've noticed in opinion, but we can certainly, it doesn't mean it can't change in the future.
3: I do think you bring up an important point, which is that as we think about countries to the south of our border, at this point, really not Mexico as much as you know Northern Central America, the story that's told in the U.S. is very politicized. And actually, that goes back to 30 years almost now, (laughs) 30 years of one party viewing the border and viewing the issue in one way versus another. But that that view is, is very different than what's believed with respect to Ukraine, with respect to Syria, with respect to Afghanistan. And because that story, or refugees who come from those places, come from a situation of International import, international aid, and international relationships. The entire country was following the Afghan evacuation in August. I think primarily because we had been, we as a country, and so many Americans had made relationships and understood, uh, you know, had real life experience in Afghanistan and and understood people and said you know we really have to do something we have spent decades in this country and we really need to get these people out we in theory could have that same opinion about Honduras but we don't you know and that's partly because the politics and the political the messaging around the countries to our south of the border has never been the same kind of messaging that Recently, you've seen with Afghanistan and Ukraine. And, you know, you could argue that that kind of messaging doesn't exist for smaller scale movements of people who are forced to move. I mean, think about the Rohingya in Bangladesh. That was certainly forced movement, but it wasn't about international relationships between the United States and other countries. It wasn't about international aid. And, you know, there still are 700,000 plus people from Myanmar living in Bangladesh with I don't know what kind of futures there and more and more kids being born stateless because Bangladesh isn't giving them birth certificates. You know, these sorts of situations when they're not part of foreign aid and foreign assistance really just sit and fuel other issues that are problematic.
0: I do have a question about these movements of people. Something like the Afghanistan crisis, it was a very easy thing for someone to wrap their head around. You know, these people helped us, the Taliban's now coming to kill them. If we don't get them out, they're going to be killed. That's a very easy thing for me to understand. Whereas with something like the southern border, when I was recently there, I met people who had been forced out of Honduras because the government was trying to kill them, but I also met a family who was coming up because the father simply couldn't find a job, but it wasn't like the government was coming to try to kill him. So I can understand how there's a confusion between those two types of people, specifically for Americans. Is there real data on how many people are coming from our southern border that are what you would normally think of as a refugee, like the Afghanistan crisis, versus people who are coming for other valid reasons, but not necessarily for refugee status?
3: Well, let let me say this, reasons and motives are messy. Every time I go to either border, the U.S. southern border, the Mexican southern border, doesn't matter. You know, people tell you all kinds of things. Let me step back by saying, You know, in response to, like, you can wrap your head around the idea, and most Americans did, that, you know, we worked with these people for 20 years in Afghanistan. And so many of them now, as the Taliban takes over, are going to be at risk. And we owe it, right, to them and our country to move these people out and give them a place for them to raise their children in a peaceful way. But migration from Northern Central American countries started growing in the late 80s. It took off in the 1990s. There was essentially no migration from Northern Central America before the mid-1980s. And then 20 years later, we're wondering why there's so many children at the border. Well, those kids are trying to reunite with their parents who are in the U.S. So What I don't understand is why we can't wrap our heads around the fact that we, the United States, has been relying on the labor of immigrants from northern Central America and from Mexico for decades. And then we're surprised that when the kids get to be 13, 14, 16, they want to live with their parents. Back in 2014, I was saying this, like, why aren't we helping evacuate those kids to go to the U.S. in a legal, safe way? Versus what has happened, which is they they hire smugglers and come up to the border. So to me, that's a very simple thing that people could get their heads around. But there's a lot of resistance to recognizing how much we in the U.S., our lives are subsidized by the lives of, you know, immigrant laborers. We do, as a nation and as an economy, rely on immigrant labor. And yet we can't wrap our arms around the fact that there could be kids and grandkids who want to reunify after years, right, of living without their parents. These kids want to reunify with them here.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's funny. I, I wrote an article using a lot of data about how we need to increase immigration or risk economic disaster for the United States. I'm totally with you and it makes so much sense. I can't help but wonder though, is there a difference in the way Americans feel versus Europeans? So Scott, is there any sort of data on this of, you know, are Europeans more willing to accept immigrants or is the U.S. more willing to accept immigrants? I think with news messaging, I always imagine that America is the most closed off, but maybe, it's not. I mean, what do we have any feelings about this or knowledge about this?
2: It's funny you bring that up because I always talk about it. Um, let me let me bring up one extreme example. You look at the country of India and how much immigration they allow. Naturalized immigration. I think it's in the low four digits. So a country with over What,
0: what you mean like a thousand people? Yes.
2: Naturalized. Now they allow guest workers and things like that, but they're just Like, no, we're not gonna naturalize someone from Canada who wants to move to India. And I think we see that a lot. I'm using an extreme example there, but let's take a look at the Syria um, refugee crisis. And a lot of those folks were moving through Eastern and Western Europe. And you would see in places like France, especially the suburbs of Paris, lots of riots, lots of opinions, and lots of, uh, to be honest, racism against Syrian immigrants as they came through. You see this in Germany. Um, you see this in Hungary, you see this in Poland, you saw this in Ukraine, too. Immigration is a huge issue in Europe, and it's highly polarizing, and I would argue in some instances more polarizing than it is in the U.S., because I think they have a little bit more in-your-face protests about it and things like that. But the U.S. is by no means the worst and by no means the best, if your measurement in, and worst and best is accepting of immigrants. It's a big issue everywhere. Um, What's interesting is, is the rhetoric and some of the opinion and messaging around it. You know, the U.S. in the early 2000s, the messaging was always, we don't need immigration because we'd like an American in the job. You know, over the last five or six years with unemployment sitting somewhere between three and five percent, which is historically low. That's a harder message to do. But in places like France, where you will see unemployment, especially in regions in 10 to 15%, that's still a pretty potent argument and things like that. And so it's one of those things, I think internationally, it's an issue. Enlightened might be the wrong word, but I don't necessarily think you know our European friends are, are looking at immigration any better or worse than we are. They're looking at it with similar problems and on similar scale.
3: I totally agree that it's not the worst here. We do have a system to naturalize, and you can set yourself up to naturalize after getting permanent residency. It takes time, it's an investment, but it can be done in many parts of the world. No one can be naturalized, or as Scott said, very, very few people can be naturalized. There's a long history of many European countries not allowing citizens to be foreign nationals. But there still, during periods of even tight restrictions, uh, there are foreign nationals who are permitted to live in the U.S. permanently and to naturalize. When I talk about all the problems in the U.S. system, and at the same time, you know, recognize that we are we're in one of the nations that, along the lines of citizenship and some other factors, has a pretty good track record. I'd love to hear Scott talk about the border. For people who don't know much about the border, and many people in the U.S., and if we just think about the southern border, many people in the U.S. and in Mexico really know very little about the border. So the border is a really unique, specific place physically, economically, with respect to the movement of people. And yet, you know, the politics around the border, the political opinion around the border, in the minds of many, it equates the border to migration, when in fact, the border is so much more than that. So I think if we were able, we, the big broader US, we, if we were able to see the border as more than migration, we actually could do some really good things that would strengthen that regional border place, which for me is typically 20 to 40 miles from the border, north and south. And we could strengthen it in so many ways that would make it a better place for
2: for everyone there. I know we're on the data podcast, but so I will bring in a qualitative focus group I was in. It was interesting. We're in Minnesota and you're asking people about what the border meant to them, right? And Minnesota, So they have the Canadian border, but they're pretty far away from the southern border. And they had some pretty strong opinions about how the border affected their day-to-day life. So think about that. They think the U.S. southern border affects their day-to-day life. And they might make an argument like you might think, Catherine. They might say, well, you know, we need a strong southern border because I want trucks to pass through freely so I get goods better or whatever. You know, they might make an economic argument, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But no, they were making a safety and fairness argument. And the safety and fairness argument was... First is they're like, well, an unprotected border lets in a lot of people we may or may not like, whether they be criminals or terrorists or whatever it is. So there's an aspect there. And an affairness is it's not that we don't like them. It's just why do they get to cut the line? Right. And so. For them, the border is symbolic of those two things. And, and if we've sat in focus groups and things like that, and I'm sure there's been some poll questions constructed, although they probably be pretty poorly constructed poll questions that kind of asked at that, generally speaking, whether you're asking this question, well, I would say if you're asking it on the uh, within 30 or 40 miles of the border, you'll probably get a better answer. But if you're asking it anywhere in America, the border pretty much is equated with fairness and safety and things like that, whether that's true or not. And I think that is kind of just the easy answer for folks. And that's what it's been drilled in for the last 15 or 20 years with 30 second ads and 10 second flashes and 10 minute fiery speeches. And so it, it's one of those things I think we need to get off the sound bites. And, and a little bit that's that's the public. I blame the public for this, is we're just people of convenience of I, I don't really want to think about this much longer than the 15 seconds that's in front of me. That's kind of the answer in all public opinion. If we were doing this, this on climate change. Um, and how to educate people on that is that it really boils down to is we got to stop speaking in 15 second increments. If we ask the border question of some very staunch Republicans who own, um, hundreds of acres on the US Mexican border they're actually fairly pro immigration as far as it goes in the political spectrum um you know they vote republican every single time and they own property on the border and they own you know guns and all the other things but they're like look unless you're going to put a 100 foot fence and then man someone every 10 feet the wall isn't an answer we have to have a comprehensive we have to have a way to get it and oh by the way I want some of these workers to work on my farm and they want to work on my farm and then they want to work on my farm and then they want to go work somewhere else. And so I think, you know, the closer you get to the issue, the more educated people get. It's just because they have to spend more than two minutes on it.
0: You know, we can say what is the general American public feeling or we can say what is the general international feeling towards, you know, the refugees or immigrant movements, but – how does it break down? You know, if we're actually trying, if political parties, either direction, or if organizations, nonprofits are trying to sway American public opinion one way or the other in terms of how they feel about refugees and migrants, who is it that they need to sway? You know, who feels which way? And- what is the kind of messaging that works? You know, what what can actually make someone feel better? Scott, I remember USA for UNHCR did some work and there were things that surprised me that actually swayed people negatively, you know, gave people less affinity for the cause that surprised me. So how do we figure those things out? Well, I
2: think public opinion polling is important, but I think we also need to go upstream with some of the message testing and how we present this information. And let me give you a parallel. When looking at trying to convince people of climate change, what a lot of organizations found was, is we don't talk about the scary parts of climate change. We talk about, well, if the sea is going to rise, then your flood insurance is going to get higher. That actually happened to convince a lot of people who were like, I don't know, climate change may be a thing, may not be a thing. But if you're telling me my, my home insurance is going to go up, my flood insurance is going to go up, I'm going to start paying attention to this. So if we take that example to immigration, maybe we don't talk about some of the hard, well, it could go either way. Maybe we don't talk about some of the hard economic choices. We talk about the moral choices. And then we see things like the Catholic Church, specifically in the US, they are considered relatively pro-immigration, and that's the angle they go. And they seem to have some efficacy there. Or on the flip side, I've seen some testing on some ads where people crossing the border, they're going to be here. Whether or not you think they should be here or not, they should be in the system so they can be contributors and they can not be in the shadows of society, right? So that's reason and logic. And so that's a long way of me saying is there's a lot of different ways to do it and different pockets of people respond differently. But what we really need to do is take the one step beyond the public opinion and really start message testing this and seeing what different groups it goes against.
3: Yeah. And I would say the message testing has to be not done at one point in time only. Uh, Because we do live in this very dynamic political landscape at the moment. A dynamic, let's say, just in the last 10 years, if we think about politics, right? So we need to be able to do that kind of message testing, um, you know, make a commitment to do it over a period of years and different months in a year so that we can really figure out whether or not something is specific to a particular time and place or whether it truly can make make a difference you know across let's say much of one country over a period of a few years
1: speaking of informing the public and educated public uh, having longer conversation make sure everybody understands what things we are. Uh, there's one thing that has changed over the time and increasingly become a concern for all of us. And uh, Katherine, thank you for your wonderful article for Harvard Data Science Review about misinformation. You particularly wrote about how the Twitter's misinformation about a set of announcements uh, about entry and exit restriction at the Venezuela and the Columbia board. So my general question here is, like, first, what do we know about the impact of this misinformation? As Scott just said, you know, 15 seconds, and can influence people's thinking and 50 seconds. Of misinformation can probably do quite a bit of damage. And my second question, probably is even a little bit harder, is how do we make sure that, particularly for the data science community itself, that when we uh, study those issues, that we will make sure that we don't fall trap being, for example, you know, tend to selectively study something that goes with my ideology and others, because that can distort the information.
3: Well, let me say that the piece that I wrote for the journal, we looked at certain announcements and certain events and then, you know, tried to use Twitter data to look at the conversation before and after those events and those announcements. And on the one hand, there is a lot of concern and we need to be concerned about misinformation and all the information that is not empirically supported. But on the other hand, in one of the events that we focused on was the president of Venezuela when he announced that there is a miracle drops cure to COVID. So we were interested in seeing after that day how much that messaging sustained itself. And, you know, for the first few days we saw in terms of frequency, a lot of messaging. But the key finding is that that messaging drops down to almost zero within the first two weeks of that announcement. So it wasn't successful from Maduro's point of view, I assume, or his people, because I'm assuming that they had hoped to make this announcement because they wanted other things to happen and that the announcement itself just has no salience in Twitter by a month afterward so that gives me some hope right <laughs> that some forms of misinformation are, will not have the saliency right that i would worry about and you know and you can measure that by in this case we use twitter but you could also you know look at other forms of organic data that would help you let's say from online newspapers in different languages and so so you could look at any event or any announcement and try to understand whether or not conversation about that event or announcement shifts over time. That's interesting, right? That is something that before this age of social media, we couldn't do. We did look at conversation, but we didn't have the same data up. We didn't have the same amount of data. We didn't have all of the data analytics we have now. So on the one hand, that's, we're moving forward. On the other hand, with all, of the social media. We have certainly evidence of, I don't know if it's more or less, I fear that it's more misinformation and the ability for computers to create more of that misinformation on their own. Increasingly, you know, in all areas of the social sciences, right, we move toward using these data more. We absolutely if, if we have a fabulously important question, we also have to prioritize the misinformation piece. You know, what are we going to do to answer the question? To me now is only half of the question that ultimately needs to be asked and answered. Because the other half has to be, how do we know what we're seeing is real? And how do we understand the various forms of manipulating the messaging or the conversation that we're studying.
0: Professor, is there is there a, a specific example over the past X amount of years of a trend that really surprised you or that you think that people wouldn't know about when it comes to sentiment? Well, I don't know how much people know about
3: it, you know, because you can't really tell in this politicized environment we're living in. I think a lot of people know this but they don't own it as knowledge that's important. At least that's my sense. I'm not a politician. But, you know, the fact that you have 80% or so, give or take, the American public supporting DACA and supporting a, you know, a way of making DACA become more permanent as a status. That's the program that President Obama, through executive action, started in 2012. It just actually had its 10 year anniversary. And that's the uh, DACA stands for Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. And um, I think estimates are about 700,000 plus uh, people in the United States have DACA. It is not a legal um, status. It is a status and it's temporary, but it does allow people who came in either with their parents or without their parents as children um, uh, to, uh, to move their status toward regularizing it so that they can work in the US and they can, you know, they can sort of be above the table versus below. So when you look at public opinion about doctor recipients, you, know, you, you just see very high numbers. A lot of support, and yet there's—it's ten years old, and we still have seven hundred thousand or more people without a formal, regularized status. And and that's that's so when I you know when I talk uh, and I tell people about that's the support for DACA. Sometimes people know, people on, on both sides of the political spectrum or on all sides will know there's a lot of support for the DACA um, recipients. And yet at the same time, you know, there's been no change, no ability in Congress to move it forward. You know, that's just one of several examples, I think. I mean, generally the U.S. public is in support of immigration, and yet we have, and we hear so much more in the media about the, let's say, the problems on the immigration side. So I don't know if it's just that people don't know some of the findings about public opinion nationwide, or they just don't then own it to move, you know, move some change forward.
0: Well, I mean, given all of this misinformation, given all these conversations about refugees and migrants, Scott, you know, you are, you are the caller of the elections coming up in 2022 and 2024. So how much will these conversations be affecting 22 and 24?
2: That's always my favorite question, especially when we're like four months out. What I have been amazed about is the public's ability to not have any attention span. (laughs) <laughs> and what I mean by that is whatever we're talking about today, if we're talking about it in the final four to two weeks, then maybe. But if we know what we're going to be talking about in the final two to four weeks in October, we should all go start a political consultancy because we will all be bajillionaires and pick um the winner.
0: We'll go to Vegas and bet on the winner. Or
2: Vegas. So yeah, actually. Or the UK where you can actually bet on this stuff. Um, The answer is, is it's possible Um, but you know, politics doesn't drive the news. Politics reacts to the news and what does the news do? The news is very, okay, well, what can I get, um, attention on? Mm. If you tell me what we're going to be talking about in October, I'll kind of tell you what the issues are, but I don't think anyone can do that. So that's an, a long way of me saying is immigration is always going to be an issue on people's radar. If it's polled, it is consistently polled in the top five of issues It's usually not the number one. Occasionally, it gets number one. Like, for instance, in 2008, it was number one in Arizona for the presidential. Why? Because John McCain ran on and those types of things. Um, But it is usually top five. And when I say top five, it's everyone could probably guess it. It's big, broad issues like immigration, healthcare, jobs and economy. Sometimes you separate those out. And then there's usually some foreign affairs aspect or something like that. But those generally are what they are. Like today, the number one issue by and large is inflation, which is a proxy for the economy.
0: It's the economy stupid, isn't that the the quote? It's the
2: economy stupid. Yeah. James Carville used to, and Paul Bogali used to say it's one of those things. And and why is that important? It's well because gas in California is above seven bucks a gallon. So that's what they care about. And that's what's on the news. And so I, I don't know if this will be an issue this fall. I do know that. Border issues, immigration issues are fundraising issues for both the Democrats and the Republicans, even though it's not maybe talked about on the news. It's what a significant amount of Republican candidates use to you know, their position on what they think should do with the border. They will raise millions, if not tens of millions of dollars on their position. And so will Democrats, by the way. Democrats will also, off their immigration position, raise millions, if not tens of millions of dollars. So it is an issue that resonates. Whether it's an issue that moves the middle or moves the swayable voters, that's a different question, and I, I, I don't have an answer for that. But it does move money among the, the, the opinion-hardened left and right.
1: Thank you, uh, Catherine and Scott, for this really uh, uh, both informative and thought-provoking conversation. And unfortunately, uh, we have to wrap up. And uh, I'm sure a conversation like this will, unfortunately, probably go on forever, uh, particularly with the world become increasingly uh, volatile. And uh, um, so we always end with this kind of magical wand question. And today's question is, what data do you want? If you can ma- wave your magical wand, what data do you want about refugees that you don't have? you know, to address the refugee issues.
3: What I really want are detailed movement histories. And, and when I say detailed, is I, I just don't know, want to know if you've moved because you were forced to move and you're somewhere. I want to know, you know, when you moved, how long it took you to get to wherever you've gone, what's happened in the place that you've been received. And importantly, if you've moved beyond that first move. We know very, very little about secondary tertiary movements among forced migrants, whether they're formerly refugees vetted by the UNHCR or not. Remember that less than 1% of refugees get resettled. So UNHCR vets people gives people the refugee label following global protocols. And then most refugees remain refugees and can't really leave where they are, but we don't really know that. We just know that only 1% get resettled. So what happens to everyone else and uh, what happens even after you get resettled? So I would like to see sort of migration history data that are timed, that would allow us to understand the first, second, third moves uh, of people. And then we could really tie such data if if they're tied to time and place, right? We can then integrate other traditional data sources with them. We could certainly understand climate-induced migration and environmentally-induced migration in a much deeper way than we have. We have some survey data that offer those kinds of detailed migration histories, but they're very specific to place and and certain migration circuits around the world. Um, And none of the global multilateral organizations collect such data because they're in the business of providing relief as well as some other things. So they're too busy. Um, but I think we could make a really significant, um, move forward, uh, if we had such data about people who were forced to move.
1: Thank you.
2: Scott. In my answer, it's going to be a little more specific. I would love, but, but, but I get riffing off specifically in the U S economic migration history, right? Like what, what I always wondered is, is if you're a person who crosses the border you mentally walked 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 miles in an an area I would never walk to a place where you're not sure how you're going to feed yourself or shelter yourself. And then a lot of these people, you know, by and large are getting jobs and then they are working themselves up to pay for shelter or send their kids to school and things like that. And I think if we had good economic data on what happens to these immigrants, especially in in the U S on, on how they integrate themselves into society, I think that'd be much more enlightening and, and move us away from the anecdotes of, Oh, You know, they're just coming here so they can rob a 7-Eleven or, oh, they're just coming here so that they can walk into an emergency room and and glom off healthcare. I think if we had hard data, irrefutable data on what these people did once they came across and not just 30 days after, but years after, I think it would take away all the anecdotes of what's going on and, and really bring some hard data to it.
1: Wonderful. And both of you just remind the whole data science community how hot it is in this humanitarian studies that how hard it is to collect data. And uh, I really want to thank both of you, but I also want to just, again, uh, make a plea to the general data science community uh, through this podcast that there's so much more can be done, should be done, and the data science community can help. And I think uh, I keep using word data science here in, in its broadest sense, because lots of things here is really about even how to ask the question, what to measure. And in this, uh, and geospace, the, one of the hardest things about collecting data is that you will have countries, regions will actively conceal their data. So this is another level of complications that I think uh, really the whole data science community can help to work on it. And again, we can have this conversation forever. And uh, thank you both of you for such a self-provoking uh, conversation. And thank you for your time.
0: Thank you both so much.